This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there, and thank you for joining me for the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers, and in this podcast episode, we are going to begin to look at the armor of God that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6. We have a spiritual warfare section in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and we've already looked at some of the preliminary background information, the battle briefing, but now we're going to start looking at the six pieces of spiritual armor. The armor of God that Paul mentions in this passage, we'll be talking about what they were for the Roman soldiers in Paul's day. We'll be talking about what they are for the Christians as we seek to follow Jesus into the world. And we will be looking at how you and I can wear these pieces of armor as we go about our day-to-day living. Today we'll be looking at the belt of truth, what it is, how to wear it as a Christian. So make sure you join us for this. Now, I do want to let you know that this podcast uh, study will be forming part of my course, an ongoing course on the armor of God. And you can sign up and take that course right now over at redeeminggod.com slash courses. The top one there right now is the armor of God. There's numerous other courses there for you as as well. What is hell? Uh, One on the spiritual gifts, how to study the Bible, uh, one on evangelism, prayer, uh, election, if, if that is interesting to you. Not political election, but the doctrine of election and predestination in the Bible. Uh, one on the church, a couple on the gospel. And uh, you can take all of those. You, you, you can't buy them. All right. They are only available for you to take for free after you join my discipleship group. All right. And you can join the discipleship group by going to redeeminggod.com slash join. All right, there is a small fee to join the discipleship group, $9 a month or $89 for the year. But along with that, uh, you're supporting me and my work, my teaching, this podcast, my books, the other things I write and publish, and just the, the cost of running the website. So sort of a way to encourage me to continue writing and publishing things, if you find that helpful. Uh, but then also, along with it, I want to say thank you. And so I give you access to over the $1,000 in courses, most of which have a free ebook you can download. You'll also get access to my private Facebook group, uh, be able to email me directly, and many other things, along with all of the benefits and blessings you will receive through the teachings that are available to you once you join that discipleship group. Okay, so uh, the courses, redeeminggod.com slash courses to find out which ones are available. The Discipleship Group, redeeminggod.com slash join to learn more about the Discipleship Group. Okay, so with all of that in mind, let's dive into our study of the belt of truth in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. So as we look at this this first piece of armor in Ephesians chapter 6, which is the belt of truth, And by the way, there are six pieces of armor mentioned here, although stay tuned because there's a secret weapon at the end, which I sort of consider to be the seventh piece of spiritual armor, and we'll be looking at that when we get there. But there are these six pieces of the armor that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, 14, 15, 16, and 17, and uh, and then we get into 18 through 20 for the seventh, but... uh, 
It's important as we look at all of these pieces of armor to understand how they worked for the Roman soldier in Paul's day. It's sort of interesting. I had someone on Facebook, or maybe it was on my website, sort of uh, criticize me this past week because I posted an image of Roman soldiers on my website as a reference for the, the armor of God that Paul was referring to. And this person criticized me for saying, what, are we supposed to imitate Roman soldiers as we, as we are Christians? And I'm like, no, we're not supposed to imitate Roman soldiers. We're supposed to imitate Jesus Christ, obviously, But we do need to understand how the various pieces of the armor of God worked for the Roman soldiers in Paul's day, because that is what Paul had in mind when he was writing about the armor of God, and it is what the Ephesian Christians would have had in mind when they were reading his letter to them about the armor of God. So if we understand the cultural, historical background to the armor of God and what they thought, then that will help us understand how to put on the various pieces of spiritual armor for ourselves. So that's why we're going to be studying these six, and then the seventh piece of spiritual armor, and uh, we'll be discussing what they were for the Roman soldier, uh, what they are for the Christian, and then how you and I can actually put them on in our day-to-day life. In this study, we're looking at the belt of truth in Ephesians 6.14. Now, it has been said, you've probably heard it said, that truth is stranger than fiction. And that's true. Uh, This is definitely the case with the following true facts. Here are some true facts. Uh, First, most animals don't eat moss because it's hard to digest and has little nutritional value. All right. But reindeer fill up with lots of moss because it contains a special chemical which helps them keep warm in the icy Arctic temperatures. Moss for reindeer acts like antifreeze in a car. Interesting, isn't it? It's a strange but true fact. Here's another one. A lightning bolt generates a temperature five times hotter than the sun. Strange but true. Here's another one. If you lived in Virginia 300 years ago, you could have paid your taxes with tobacco. (laughs) Or how about this? One cup of neutron star weighs about 480 million tons. One cup of star, neutron star. Uh, How about this one? My wife is scared of spiders, so she'll appreciate this one. If you are scared of spiders, you will be happy to learn that you are more likely to be killed by a champagne cork than by a spider. (laughs) And last, uh, but certainly not least, this one is true uh, to my heart, because I'm a lover of books. 1,000 years ago, the Grand Vizier of Persia had to make a long journey, but he was an avid reader and couldn't stand the thought of being away from his scrolls for so long. So he had his 117,000 scrolls loaded onto 400 camels And then he trained servants to keep the camels in alphabetical order as they followed him around on his journey. (laughs) A man after my own heart. Uh, But look, those are strange but true facts. The thing is, even though they are true, they're not very helpful, are they? Uh, 
we want, the ideal thing about truth is that the truth is helpful. The best kind of truth is that which will help us in life, will answer our questions, will guide us into happiness, peace, and prosperity. All right? Even on a more practical level, if you're a parent, you want to know when your kids are telling you the truth. You want to know when you're being lied to at work. You want to know which news is fake, right? <laughs> and which politicians are lying. Wouldn't that be helpful today? Uh, most significantly, when it comes to eternal truths, things of eternal importance, we want to know what God is like, what he really expects of us, you know, how he wants us to treat other people, whether or not our sins have been forgiven, and how we can know if we will spend eternity with him. Those are truths of eternal significance, right? The problem is we have this enemy of God, which we have talked about in previous studies, which is Satan. Satan is the father of lies, and Satan does not want us to know the truth about those questions of eternal importance. Satan seeks to spread as much disinformation as possible about these critical questions, uh, and therefore deceive us and deceive the world. Right? Remember, as we looked at the traps, the wiles of the devil, one tactic the devil uses in setting traps for us is to call into question the truth of God's word. We see this way back as early as Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say, right? And the Satan has been doing the same thing up to this very day, calling into question the truth of God's word. God has revealed truth to us in Scripture, which provides answers to us about all of these most pressing questions in life. But Satan seeks to obscure and challenge and distort the truth of what God has revealed. Just to give you some other examples, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you might have come across lots of confusion about what is required to receive eternal life. I teach on my podcasts and in my discipleship group and my courses and in my books and so on, the truth that I see taught all over the place in Scripture, especially from the words of Jesus, for example, all over in the Gospel of John, and in the, the, the teachings and writings of Paul and the other apostles, that we receive eternal life simply and only by believing in Jesus for it. The thing is, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you read many books, heard sermons on the radio, you might have heard other pastors, other teachers, other authors say something different, right? They might say that in order to receive eternal life, you have to confess your sins and repent and get baptized and submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, attend church, read the Bible, pray, tithe, raise a hand, walk an aisle, sign a card, say a prayer. Who knows what it might be? All of these works and activities that are in the teachings of some required to receive eternal life. But you never see those things required by Jesus or Paul when they are talking about eternal life. So that's why I teach the way I do. So, but nevertheless, there's this confusion in the church, right? Eternal life, though, is not gained by good works of any sort. It is a free gift of God's grace to anyone and everyone who simply and only believes in Jesus for it. Again, if you have more questions about that, I do invite you to take my course uh, the Gospel According to Scripture, which is available to people in the discipleship group. 
Uh, but that's just one area. There's lots of confusion about other areas in the Christian life as well. For example, uh, what is God like? Well, the clearest revelation we have about God is Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, all you need to do is look at Jesus. Jesus shows us that, for example, God is nonviolent. Lots of people look at the Old Testament and think that God is violent. But Jesus shows us that God is not violent. And then how do we reconcile this, this uh, violent, loving appearance of God in the Old Testament with the Jesus who does not engage in violence? Well, I, I have some ways, uh, some suggested ways, one of which I wrote about in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, which is available on Amazon, uh, which you can read, uh, because there we see what God is, especially on the cross, we see that God is not violent, that it is instead we humans who are violent, and that then helps us understand how to read the Old Testament. By the way, I am writing a book on this, which I hope to have some, out in sometime in the next couple of years. It's a lot of work, but I'm I'm trying to lay out this vision of God in a, a, a much different way than probably you've ever heard before, and it will also help you read your Bible in a completely different way. Anyway, I'll tell you more about that in future podcast studies uh, for those of you who subscribe to my podcast. Make sure you do that. Uh, but Satan not only spreads lies about how to receive eternal life and what God is like, is God uh, loving and gracious and forgiving, or is he mean and cruel and wants us to kill people? What is he like? He also spreads lies about the church, what the church is. I've talked about that in previous studies, written lots of books about that as well. Uh, Satan tries to tell us lies about our worth, whether or not God loves us. Tries to tell us lies about our past. Oh, God could never forgive you for that sin. He tries to just tell us lies about our relationships, uh, our, our health, right, our future, all of these things. And all of these lies of Satan introduce fear into our lives about our past, about our present state, our, our relationship with God, and about our future and where we're going to go when we die, and all these things. And, and, and in, in the midst of all these lies, God has spoken truth to us, and God wants to liberate us, rescue us, redeem us from all of these lies. As we read in John 8.32, God has given us truth, and the truth will set us free. Knowing the truth allows us to live as God intended in this life and to experience the joy and satisfaction of life that he has for us. Okay? So, it's with good reason that as Paul turns in Ephesians 6.14, he's already given the battle briefing to explain our situation, uh, describe to us the enemy, the foe that we are arrayed, that is arrayed against us, sort of give us the three things we're supposed to do on the field of battle, stand our ground, watch out for the wiles of the devil, put on the armor of God, and so on, all these things. Okay, now the battle briefing is over, and he returns to this one command he gave us to put on the armor of God, and he's going to tell us what pieces of armor is available to us and how we are to put it on. And so as Paul turns to this, very first thing, he's told us to watch out for the wiles of the devil, so the very first piece of armor that he wants us to wear is the belt of truth. All right? With this very first piece of armor, Paul tells us that God has given something to us to help us break through all the deceptions, all the lies, all the twisting of the truth by Satan. 
All right, now here's how we're gonna proceed with this piece of armor and with all of the others in future studies. First, I'm gonna tell you what this piece of armor did for the Roman soldier in Paul's day. Yes, we're gonna go back, look at the culture, look at the history of that time, and I will describe it for you. And if you're watching the video that goes along with this, then I will even put some pictures uh, from archaeology and so on, uh, and, and artistic renditions of what this piece of armor looked. We'll do that for the belt of truth. That's the first thing, what it was for the Roman soldier in Paul's day. Second, we're going to talk about what this piece of armor is for Christians throughout time, what it is. All right. Third and finally, then, we will look at how to take it up and put it on, because that was the command, right? To take up and put on the full armor of God. This is not some mystical prayerful, you know, imaginary experience where you imagine yourself buckling on the belt of truth before you get out of bed in the morning or anything like that. No, there are real tangible, concrete, practical things that you can do in each and every day to actually and truly put on the, the various pieces of armor, and, and starting with this belt of truth, okay? So what was the belt of truth in Paul's day, I'm sorry, not the belt of truth. What was the belt in Paul's day for the Roman soldiers? Well, everybody knows what a belt is. Belts haven't changed a whole lot over the millennium, millennia, uh, the thousands of years. I don't know when belts were first invented, thousands and thousands of years ago, but they haven't changed a whole lot since. It's a strip of leather or fabric, usually. And it often has a way to fasten it around your waist, a buckle or something like that, okay? And uh, we, we fasten them around our waist today. Why do we wear belts? Well, sometimes it's fashion, but usually it's to help keep our pants up. Um, and, and that's the same thing it was for the, the Roman soldier in Paul's day. The belt for the Roman soldier served a critical function in his overall, uh, the, the overall function of his armor, all right, it wasn't just for decoration. It wasn't just a fashion accent for the Roman soldier. There was a little bit of that, and I will explain that as we go here. But the belt for the Roman soldier was about two to four inches in height, very similar to many belts today. It was made of leather, again, just like often like belts today. And uh, it was often covered with and decorated with metal strips. Uh, it had a buckle, just like modern belts. And then it had a st uh, little straps or attachments, which you could use to, they used to connect the belt to the sword and the breastplate. We'll be talking about the sword and the breastplate in future studies. Now, quite often, some straps with metal discs or studs on them were attached to the front of the belt. And I have a picture here, if you're watching the video, that sort of shows what these looks like. These, these leather strips, and then they had these metal studs attached to it, which hung down basically right in front of the man and uh, protected, well, not protected, but in front of the male body parts, okay? Now, even though they hung down in front of the male body parts, everybody is in agreement that they did absolutely nothing to protect that part of the soldier. And so archaeologists and historians have debated what these strips of leather were for with the decorative studs on them. And uh, most people believe they were purely ornamental. Others say, no, no, they probably indicated some sort of rank or awards. 
And uh, that's probably true because these metal studs were often made from expensive materials such as gold, silver, and ivory. And only those who had received them as awards or those of higher rank who had more money probably could afford them. And so they might have indicated some sort of rank or achievement. All right. Now, here's what's interesting about the belt. Only soldiers, Roman soldiers, were allowed to wear this kind of belt. Yes, other people wore belts in that time, maybe made from linen or leather or rope or something, but this particular belt with these particular decorations, only Roman soldiers were allowed to wear them. And in fact, Roman soldiers wore them pretty much all the time, even when they were out of uniform, even when they weren't wearing the rest of their armor. They would very often take off their breastplate. They're not going to carry their shield around or their helmet around all the time. But even when they're just in their tunic, walking around town, they would pretty much always be wearing their belt. All right, so as a result, many believe, rightfully so, that the belt was a status symbol of their position and authority in the Roman army. All right, it set them apart from other people as they walked around and showed that they were a member of the elite Roman military. It's sort of like today, a modern police officer, you know, might um, carry his badge around. He might not be in his uniform all the time, but he might uh, carry his badge around as a symbol. Now, it's not visible all the time. Now, if a, if, a, if a modern police officer was going to be disciplined, you've seen this in movies, what does the lieutenant or the captain do? They usually take away the badge. Turn in your badge and gun, right? That's what they do. And this is, surprisingly, what they would also do to Roman soldiers in Paul's day. If a Roman soldier was going to be disciplined, then their commanding officer would require them to temporarily turn in their belt, no more status symbol for you. Now the soldier would have to walk around town without his belt, and it would be a humiliating, shameful experience for them, especially among their friends or family who might have known. They'd say, where's your belt? What did you do? Why did you get your belt taken away? That sort of a thing. Very similar to how a police officer, law enforcement officer, might get their badge taken away today. All right? So, um, now, uh, the, the belt, though, it... it, it it initially might seem to be a relatively minor piece of the Roman military armor. I mean, you're thinking, okay, the belt, what can it do? It's not going to stop a sword. It's not going to stop a spear. Okay, it's a little ornamental. It's a little bit of status symbol. But other than that, it's not that important, really, in the overall scheme of things, is it? And yet, Paul lists it first. As Paul turns to talk about the armor of God, he puts it first. And why is that? Because there were three primary functions that this belt provided to the Roman soldier, which really made it one of the most important pieces of the Roman military, Roman soldier's armor. First of all, beneath the armor, the Roman soldier wore a fitting tunic, a loose fitting tunic. I'm sure you've seen these in, in, in movies and so on. Again, if you're watching on the video here, you can sort of see the tunic that these soldiers might be wearing underneath their armor. All right. The belt helped keep the soldier from getting tangled in his own tunic. The belt kept the tunic circled in a, a, 
uh, a tight and close-knit area around the soldier's waist, so it's not flopping around, right? If the soldier had a longer tunic, he might even take the four corners of the tunic and fold it up underneath the belt to keep his legs free and to keep from getting tangled or from tripping up on the tunic, okay? This was called girding up the loins, by the way. And if you go to places in the world today where men wear robes, you might actually see that them do this today if they're at work. And I was in India several years back, and the men wear these, uh, these sort of uh, towels, pieces of cloth wrapped around their legs. And um, it was very common to see the, the men, if they wore these, to wrap them up and tuck them in to their belt sort of area. That way it was a you know, ready-made pair of shorts, and they would do this if they were running or if they were doing manual labor outside. Anyway, that's the same thing that the Roman soldier might do, all right? And here in, um, in fact, some people say here in Ephesians 6.14, the most literal translation is, stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Right? Rather than just putting the belt on, wrapping the belt around you, taking up the belt, girding your loins might be the most literal translation. And the loins, of course, is the upper part of the thigh. And so that is what Paul has in mind here. And the belt helped that, helped them do that, helped uh, get that, that tunic all girded up and, and stop it from flapping so they don't trip it around. Okay? That's the first way that the belt helped them with their their warfare, with their armor. Now, this was not the only purpose of the belt, though. All right, uh, the belt was also used to help carry the load of the heavy packs the soldiers wore while they were marching. When they marched, as we talked about previously, their pack could weigh anywhere between 50 and 100 pounds. It would carry their gear, their food, a bedroll, and so on. And if you've ever carried a heavy backpack, then you know that 50 to 100 pounds is a lot of weight to carry on your shoulders, especially for 20, 25, 30 miles, as was not uncommon for them to march in one day. And so the Roman military devised a way to attach these packs to the belts of the shoulder. And this served two purposes. Number one, it helped keep the pack tight against their back so that it didn't swing or bounce around while marching. Remember, their march was a little closer to a run. Uh, and it also, this, this attachment of the back to the belt helped redistribute some of the weight off of the back of the shoulders and then down onto the hips. If you have a hiking backpack, we're using the same technology today for our hiking backpacks. You know that most hiking backpacks have sort of a, a belt of uh, a, a padded belt that you can strap around your waist and then clip on, clip around your waist where you would you, you know, the buckle of your belt would be. And if you cinch that up tight, then you know that a lot of the weight from your backpack gets redistributed from your shoulders and down onto your hips. And so that makes it a whole lot easier to carry for a longer distance. And that is what the belt did for the Roman soldiers. That's the second thing. Helps tie up their tunic, helps redistribute the weight of their backpacks. Thirdly and finally, uh, and maybe even most importantly, it helped keep the breastplate tight against the shoulder's chest. And it held his sword, obviously. Uh, without the belt, the breastplate would be wobbling all over. Okay, It had no way to attach to the front without the belt. And it would bang against the chest of the soldier as he tried to run or move, but the belt helped secure the breastplate. Uh, yeah, it was tied around in back as well with some straps and cords, 
But then the belt would really was sort of the final piece that really helped secure it in position. It didn't ride up on the, the soldier's neck then, you know, cutting off his ability to breathe. Uh, and then, of course, there was the sword, too. That's where you hang the sword. Uh, if, if, if you don't have a belt, there's nowhere for you to carry your sword. And a soldier is not much good in battle if he doesn't have his sword. Okay, so in light of all of this, the belt is one of the most important pieces of the soldier's armor. You know, it's sort of like police officers today. You see police officers as they get in and out of their cars and they walk their beat and they go around. One of the most distinguishing characteristics of a police officer, yes, their uniform and so on, but it's their belt. This is where they carry their handcuffs. This is where they carry their gun and their spray and their radio and all of the other tools of their trade hang on their belt. The belt is a critically important part of the modern police officer's uniform. In fact, you could argue that the police officer could pretty much go without the rest of his uniform as long as he had his belt. Same with a carpenter. Where does a carpenter hang his hammer, nails, screws, drill, tape measure, anything he needs while he's on the construction site? Well, on the belt. It's a portable toolbox. Okay, so in lots of trades and professions today and throughout time, the belt is critically important for the proper uh, achievement, proper functioning of that job. Okay, so that is why Paul lists the belt first when he comes to describe the spiritual armor we have from God. First and foremost, we are told to take up and put on the belt. Okay, that's what the belt was for the Roman soldier. What then is the belt for the Christian? All right, what analogy? Paul calls it the belt of truth. So obviously it's truth, but why does Paul equate the Roman soldier's belt with truth? Well, Paul does this because he's just mentioned the belt. And remember, the Roman soldiers pretty much wore this belt around at all time. And the belt was the identifying mark of the Roman soldier. If you were walking around in the marketplace, everybody's wearing tunics, but you saw two men walking together wearing a Roman belt, a Roman soldier belt, you would know, even if you didn't know these men, you knew nothing else about them. They had no other signs that they were soldiers. You would know that they were soldiers because they were wearing their belt. And that's the way truth functions for the Christian. Truth is one of the primary things that sets Christians, sets Christianity apart from everyone else in the world. Now, look, I'm not saying other people don't have truth. They do. I'm also not saying that other, Christ other religions don't have truth. They do. All right? But Christianity has some central truths which are not available anywhere else that no human can think up, no human has imagined. They were come to us directly from revelation by God. That's the only source for these truths. And you won't find these truths in any other religion or in any other system of thought. Uh, these truths are essential for understanding life, the purpose of life, for understanding God, what he is like, even for understanding human culture and human history, for understanding uh, things like we talked about earlier, how to receive eternal life. Uh, and all of these truths are centered upon, found through Jesus Christ and the revelation of the gospel. Just to give you some examples, again, uh, the truth of Christianity uh, teaches that life is about serving others. 
all right, this is this is a truth sort of found in other groups and other religions, even in other individuals. But uh, in general, the modern consensus of most people in the world today is that we need to put ourselves first, right? Our own personal goals, needs, and dreams, and desires above everybody else. But Jesus comes along, he says, no, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And that we should do like he has done, and die to ourselves, and put others first. All right? And uh, furthermore, Scripture teaches that this life is not all there is. Again, many people in this world, he who dies with the most toys wins. In other words, the only thing that matters is what you do in this life. So you need to get as much money, power, possessions, fame, and glory for yourself as you possibly can. Christianity says, no, all that stuff is but a puff of smoke, right? Uh, Such things are worthless and insignificant in light of eternity, So uh, we must work for and strive after the things that last, things of the kingdom of God. And then again, we talk about some of the things that Scripture reveals to us about God, what God is like. Uh, We talked about some of these earlier, but uh, most people, even sadly, many Christians think that God is a God of violence and wrath, and they have verses they can use to support that idea from the Bible. I get it. Um, But we see in Jesus that God does not seek to kill and destroy. That's the thief. That's the enemy who does that. God is a God of life, love, and liberty. Our God, as revealed to us in Jesus, freely forgives, extends unconditional grace toward all. And he seeks to serve rather than be served. He would rather die than kill. Right? And such a view of God, you can't find that view of God anywhere else in all of history, or in any other religion, really. Uh, Only Christianity teaches that God would rather die for us than ask us to die for him. Even a lot of Christians don't believe that. Uh, lots, Lots of people say, oh, we need to be willing to die for God if we're really going to be one of his children. No, God demands nothing from us in order to be loved and accepted by him. And uh, the, the truth about God is radical and shocking and is found only in Jesus Christ. Uh, as far as human culture is concerned, this is one of the things I do explain in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, and I will explain even more in this future book I've got coming out. But the Bible reveals something very shocking that, again, you're not going to find anywhere else about human culture. The Bible reveals that human culture and civilization is founded on the what's called the myth of redemptive violence. This is the idea that my violence can defeat your violence. Okay? Well, you have bad violence, but I'm going to defeat your bad violence by being violent towards you in a good way. That's called the myth of redemptive violence. And the Bible reveals to us that it is a myth, that it's not true. All violence is bad violence, according to Scripture. Okay? Violence only results and leads to more violence. Right? So God's solution, as seen in Jesus, is not to engage in an ever-increasing spiral of violence, but instead to forgive. When we engage in the greatest act of violence against God by killing his son Jesus on the cross, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All right? This is the truth that you will not find taught anywhere else in all of human history and culture. Uh, in any other religion, but only through Jesus and the crucifixion and the revelation from God in the Bible, that the way to defeat violence is through forgiveness. 
Then, of course, there's the truth of eternal life. We talked about this already as well, but let me emphasize it again. If you ask the average person on the street, the average person of any other religion in the entire world, even, sad to say, the average Christian, what do you need to do to receive eternal life? Spend eternity with God. The answer you will get will almost always include some sort of good works. Well, I got to be a really good person. As long as I'm a better, you know, commit more good works than bad works. As long as I am try to be honest and faithful and, and not lie too much and not steal. As long as I don't kill anybody, uh, you know, unless they really need it or something, <laughs> unless they deserve it. Uh, or as maybe someone else does it for me, uh, as long as I go to church, read my Bible, pray, submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, get baptized, these sorts of things, all good works, right? Well, then I can have eternal life. But the truth of Scripture is that eternal life is a free gift of God, solely and completely by God's grace. There's nothing we can do to receive it or earn it, okay? It's, it's, it's freely given to everyone who believes in Jesus for it. And that's one of the truths that we read all over the place in Scripture. Numerous other truths we could talk about, but the point is this, all right? Here, these are just some of the central truths that makes Christianity unique, that sets Scripture apart. It shows us that the belt of truth is essential for spiritual warfare, right? Just as the Roman soldier wore his belt around all the time to indicate that he was a soldier, and he never took it off, so also... We must wear truth all the time. We are to continually live in light of the truth we have received from God. We should never let go of the truth, right? Just as it was shameful for a Roman soldier to have his belt taken away, so also it is shameful for a Christian to deny the truth that we have received from God. The belt of truth helps us keep our lives on track. Remember, it's attached to the breastplate. We're going to be talking about the breastplate next in the second half of verse 14. Um, But uh, we will see that the breastplate of righteousness is connected and attached to the belt of truth. We'll see this in, in multiple ways, but just sort of to recognize it by now, the righteousness of God tells us uh, we receive it, first of all, by believing in Jesus for it. There's this theological concept of imputed righteousness. Well, how do you receive the imputed righteousness of God? Through justification, through receiving eternal life. How does that happen? By faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So you cannot get the breastplate of righteousness from God unless you believe in Jesus for it. That's a truth. That's a biblical truth. There's the connection, one of the connections between the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. But another one is, once we've received the righteousness of God, God wants us to live in a righteous way. Well, how can you do that unless you know the right way to live. You can't, but the Bible tells us the right way to live. The Bible gives us the truth about what God wants from us on how to live. So again, we have this connection here between righteous living, the right way of living, and the belt of truth, the truth that is revealed to us in Scripture about how to live. Okay, so there's lots of other connections, but the point is, this is what the the belt is for the Christian. It is truth. It's about knowing the truth, believing the truth, and living the truth. And without this truth, then we are easily tripped by Satan's lies. We easily fall to the wiles and the traps of the devil. We we easily uh, fall prey to his tricks and his traps and his deceptions. Okay, so 
as a Christian, if we want to have the belt of truth, then we must surround ourselves with truth and speak the truth to others, because the belt is truth for the Christian. All right, so so we've already sort of indicated, but let's turn thirdly and finally to talk about how to put on the belt as a soldier. How to put on the belt of truth. Now, I do want to indicate also, as we go along through all of these pieces of the spiritual armor, that they originate with God. This is called the armor of God, by the way. And so we need to recognize that this armor is not of us, it is from God, it is of God, it is God's own armor that he is giving to us to wear. All right, so Isaiah 11.5 says that God wears a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. Uh, the Greek translation of this text uses the word truthfulness. All right, so it's likely that Paul had the Greek version of this text in mind when he wrote about the belt of truth. Okay, so the belt belongs to God, he has given it to us. So how do we take it up and put it on? Okay, it's not just about imagining yourself buckling the belt of truth around your waist when you before you get out of bed in the morning. By referring to Isaiah 11:5 and this belt of truthfulness, Paul has revealed that the truth that this belt is it's not human truth, but it's God's truth. It belongs to God and comes from God. And where is the unwavering standard of God's truth found? Well, it's found in the Bible. It's found in Scripture. Psalm 119.160 says that God's word is truth. Jesus echoes this in John 17.17 17, when, in praying to God, he says, Your word is truth. In Colossians 1.15, Paul calls the Bible, and specifically the gospel message, which is part of the Bible, large part of the Bible, Paul calls it the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, we're told as Christians to correctly handle the Bible as the word of truth. Okay, so if we want to know how to put on the belt of truth, you and I put on the belt of truth, this first piece of spiritual armor, by diving into and digging around, and studying, and memorizing, and learning the truths of Scripture. In Proverbs 6, 21 and 23, we are told that the wisest man who ever lived, uh, by the wisest man who ever lived, that the good life comes from taking the truth of the Bible and binding it on our heart, tying it around our neck, thinking about it when we walk, when we sleep, when we wake up. Okay, in other words, we take up and put on the belt of truth by studying the Word of God. Now, now, if you're familiar with the armor of God, you might be objecting right about now. You might be saying, but Jeremy, look down to Ephesians 6.17, where we read about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You might be saying, Jeremy, you can't have two pieces of armor, the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, both be referring to the Word of God. That doesn't make any sense. How can both the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit be the Word of God? Well, good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> we will discuss this a lot more when we get to the sword of the Spirit. But the basic answer for now is discovered in remembering that on the armor of the Roman soldier, the sword hangs on the belt, doesn't it? So the two are, were expected to be intimately connected. In fact, as I said earlier, if you don't have the belt, then you also don't have 
the sword, right? The two items are connected on the Roman soldier's armor. So it's not surprising for the belt of truth to be so closely associated with the sword of the Spirit. So the question then is, how are they different? The short answer is that it's the difference between obtaining or learning the truth of Scripture and using or practicing Scripture with Scripture to defend ourselves against Satan. All right? So I would put it this way. We put on the belt by reading and studying the Bible. All right? Uh, The belt of truth is when we listen to good biblical preaching and teaching. We read good, strong theological books that explain Scripture and theology when we memorize verses from the Bible. All right? Putting on the belt of truth is putting into ourselves the truth of the Bible. We come to understand what it says, to know what it teaches. This is how we take up and buckle on the belt of truth. All right? Uh, this, it, it, and when we do this, obviously the sword comes with a belt. But having the sword is not the same thing as using the sword. Okay? We use the sword by taking the truths we've learned from Scripture and applying them to our day-to-day situations, especially when we are tempted by the devil. And we will talk about this a whole lot more when we come to the sword of the Spirit. But just by way of illustration now, remember when Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, right? Jesus was able to turn away the attacks of the devil by quoting verses, passages from the Bible, which defused the devil's tricks, right? That was Jesus using the sword of the Spirit to defend himself against the wiles of the devil, Now, how was Jesus able to do that? Jesus was able to do that because he had spent time studying, reading, learning, memorizing, and understanding the truth of Scripture. If he had never studied the Bible, if he had never read, understood, memorized passages out of the Bible, then when the temptation comes, came at him, he would not have access to the truth of Scripture, which he could then have used to ward off, to defend himself against the wiles, against the attacks of the devil. All right? So we put on the belt of truth by putting on the word of God. We wrap it around us. We cinch it tight by getting daily into the pages of scripture. Uh, It is the truth of the word of God, which enables us to stand against the lying and deceiving wiles of the devil. Yes, the devil sets his traps. He has his wiles. These traps are everywhere. They are both inside and outside the church. Everywhere you go, there's wiles of the devil. He's like a fisherman, reeling in ignorant people who do not know the truth revealed in the Word of God. Now, without the Bible, we can't know anything for sure about God. Just think about that. If you didn't have the Bible, how would you know anything for sure about God? about Jesus, about ourselves, about eternal life. You might hear some rumors. There might be some history, but there would be questions. There would be doubts. There would be fears. You would not be able to know anything for sure. And that goes for the same argument, by the way, if the Word of God is not true. If the Word of God is not true, then we really can't know anything for sure but what is true. So the Bible is our foundation for truth. And if the Bible is our foundation, then it is authoritative for our life and theology. 
all right? We must base our authority on what it reveals to us, because it's either the authority revealed in Scripture or it's our own personal opinions and ideas. There are own emotions and experiences and opinions. So we must accept the Bible as the true Word of God, as the primary authority on all matters about which it speaks. Okay, And only in this way can we accept and put on the belt of truth. So gird up your loins. Buckle the belt of truth around you so that you can stand secure in the promises and truths it contains. The enemy is coming with his lies and deceptions, and with the belt of truth firmly clasped around your waist, you will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So I hope you found this study on the Belt of Truth helpful and informative. You've learned what the belt was for the Roman soldier. You learned what the belt is for Christians. Most importantly, how to put on the belt. And podcasts like this are how you do that. Yes, sermons and books and and other podcasts can be helpful for you as well. But I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Because it's your listening that supports me, encourages me, lets me know that I'm putting stuff out there that you find helpful and encouraging and informative uh, as you seek to follow Jesus into the world. Now, if you do want to get more teachings like this, I do strongly encourage you to join my online discipleship group. It's found at redeeminggod.com join. And it, you, when you do that, you get access to all of my online courses as well as a private discipleship Facebook group access to email through me, free ebook downloads, other audio downloads, and all sorts of things that are going to continue to help you answer your questions and give you direction uh, for your life as a follower of Jesus. People who are in the course find it extremely helpful and encouraging uh, as they take the next step in their in discipleship with Jesus. So just go to redeeminggod.com slash join to learn more. Next week, we're going to pick back up with Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, verse 14, talking about the breastplate of righteousness. Make sure you join us then. It'll probably be on Thursday in the mid-afternoon again. So I look forward to seeing you back here and uh, teaching you about the breastplate of righteousness. All right, have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.